uh, this morning, much like this past week. These are very simple, very plain uh, words that are being written here. There isn't a lot of uh, gymnastics and jumping around and trying to understand each and every part, but it, it's so important for us to even see some of these beautiful, simple elements that are here. Um, one of the greatest things that I think as a pastor I get concerned about at times when I see a text like this, all right, we see texts that people tend to be so familiar with, is as a, as a person who is going to be preaching and as a pastor of the concern that maybe there would be some that would just kind of say, well, I've heard that, I've heard that before, I've studied this text before, I know what this is saying, or um, I'm really familiar with this, so it's not going to be anything that is for me. Hopefully somebody else learns from it, but there's not going to be anything for me. Or when we do see something simple of kind of setting it aside and saying, well, this isn't really as important because it's just, and we fill in the blank with whatever the case could be. Uh, this is often what I would do when we see different texts, particularly the opening of the Gospel of Matthew, right? We get the genealogy and we see that and we can easily go, oh, well, that's just a list of names. We can jump right through those 18 or 20 uh, verses there. But truly seeing that even a genealogy account is giving the testament and the evidence to the very fact that Christ was the one of promise, of the seed of David, all the way throughout. So you're seeing an incredible testimony to these promises, even in the genealogy accounts, even when we can't say the names correctly, right? Um, I've always struggled with saying a lot of those names because I obviously don't understand those names. But understand that even the smallest, simplest text, no matter how simple or how complex, each and every word that has been given here comes from the very breath of God, given for our edification, for our being built up, and ultimately for his glory. Um, so I would just like to encourage us as we look today at this person of Epaphroditus, as we look to an example, another person being somewhat esteemed, given as an example by Paul here, that while it is simple, we hold these things with a proper um, understanding. Two weeks ago, we looked at the example here that Paul has given. Um, we'll go quickly back through a couple of these verses. After the exhortation to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to do so, showing these things, working these things out, he says in verse 16, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Even if I could just be a brief addition into what it is that the Philippian church is doing, Paul is saying, if I be poured out upon the sacrifice of it, I will rejoice and rejoice with you all. Um, it's interesting for me to see someone like Paul, and often we can hold Paul in such great esteem. We look at Paul and say, Paul, you're one of the greatest Christians that's ever lived, but constantly see his humility in the way that he addresses others. The way that we see him talking of Timothy here, the way he exhorts and uplifts and encourages even these other churches, both in Philippi and in Ephesus and Colossae, we see such great humility on his part. And then he talks about Timothy, as we went through last week, about why he is sending, wanting to send Timothy. He says in verse 20, For I have no man like-minded who will mutually care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. And then he gives the, the affirmation in 22, But you know the proof of him. Incredible encouragement of Timothy as the example, saying, Timothy genuinely will care for you, and I have no one else around me that is truly 
able to do so, that is concerned in the same things. For all seek their own, not the things which are Christ. So now this morning, Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 through 30, we're going to get to know a little bit this individual named Epaphroditus. And again, I don't know what the heading is on your Bible and mine. It's Epaphroditus' service to Paul. I think that is very fitting because we are going to see very quickly this morning the incredible service in the heart of this person of Epaphroditus. If you remember last week, we talked about Timothy and we saw him. He was an incredibly gifted, incredibly talented, an incredible young person that was mentored by Paul. We looked at the example of Christ about three to four weeks ago and said, okay, Christ being the ultimate example. Every person we see from here on out as an example all falls under the umbrella of Christ as the ultimate, Christ as the pinnacle, as the true example. But then Paul gives himself. And we could say, hey, well, I'm not like Paul. Paul's way too up there. I couldn't be like that. I'm not an apostle. I'm not all of these things. You're going to have to give me something else I can actually look to. Well, Timothy, well, that doesn't work because Timothy was involved in ministry. He was more of a pastor. Um, he was young. He was incredibly gifted in these ways. Well, pastor, I'm not really gifted in these same ways. I can't connect with Timothy. That's different. Well, now we get Epaphroditus. In each step, continuing to show an example for anyone that would be able to be within these words here. Epaphroditus was another protege of Paul. This is the, the person that the Philippian church sent to Paul upon hearing of his imprisonment. This was the person that was sent to him with a gift and to go and to minister him. If you remember all the way back in the first chapter, which was quite a while ago, all the way back there, they were sending someone to come and to minister to Paul and to bring him a gift because he's under house arrest, he's imprisoned, he's not able to work, he's not able to support himself. He was reliant upon the needs of other people for each and everything. There's consideration of Paul potentially being executed. What is it that we are to do with this person? He's spreading this heresy, this lie about Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Savior, that he's all of these things. That did not sit well. Again, that's why he was imprisoned, right? They're having these considerations, and being a close ally of Paul would have likely put you very much under the same microscope. If I were to go over again, we use the example, if I were to go and to visit an imprisoned Christian pastor somewhere in Turkey or Syria or any other place, I too would be in great danger for the simple linking between the two of us. That is a similar situation to what they endured. To even go to give a gift to Paul, to go and to bring him food, was also to say, I too am a Christian and believing these things that you have imprisoned him for. And I think we can easily overlook that and say, of course they would want to visit a friend. Of course, if someone from uh, the church was imprisoned for whatever the case may be, of course people would want to go and we would want to go help them. We want to go help feed them and clothe them and take care of them. Uh, but often it's not always these circumstances where you could also be imprisoned. You also could be killed for these very things. And so upon hearing that Paul is in chains, that he is in prison, that he can no longer do these things, the Philippian church, out of their uh, desire to do so and their being so gracious and generous, sending a gift and sending someone to minister to him. Epaphroditus exemplifies a great spirit of sacrifice 
and of service here. He is kind of one of these unsung heroes that we see in the background, a person who was much more of a deacon, not so much a pastor or an elder, but a person who lived his life to serve Christ and to serve others, sacrificially in so many ways. Now consider, if you were the Philippian church, if you were in a leadership council gathered together to say, okay, we need to send someone to go and minister to Paul, to go to serve Paul, to help him, whatever it is that he needs, would you just send some random person? This church had to have held him in such great esteem if this is the one that they are sending to go minister to the Apostle Paul. This is not just, hey, who wants to go? Volunteers. You do? Okay, cool. You can go. This is an intentional choosing and sending out from the church of Epaphroditus to the Apostle Paul as he is there. And we're going to get a little bit of insight into the relationship between him and Paul, starting off here in verse 25. And again, word nerds, I want you to stay with me and try to convert these other people that are not big on words. Words are important, and I like grammar. So the other three of you, stand strong with me on this. Verse 25 says, Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor, and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and that he and he that ministered to my wants. He is saying to them again, he has been sent to minister to Paul. But yet, what is it that Paul is saying? Yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. He's sending him back where he came from. We're going to look at that a little bit more here in just a few minutes. But he is saying it was necessary to send him back. And then he gives a few different titles to Epaphroditus. And notice the first one. He calls him my brother. This is very personal. He does not just say, I suppose it's necessary to send you Epaphroditus, that guy. Right? This is not impersonal. It's not cold. It is a very personal, my brother. Now, were they actually brothers? Of course, they were not actually brothers. But continue to think about how how much Paul has a deep love and affection for those who are also joined in Christ. It is not a cold, well, he just came from this other church. I'll deal with him while he's here. He's ministering to me. Yes, he's a Christian too, but, you know, whatever. It is a deep love that he has for another believer that is coming and willing to minister to him. It is incredibly close, incredibly personal. The whole second half of Ephesians, I know that uh, some of the ladies here, you guys have been studying through Ephesians and you're entering in with chapter 4 and 4 through 6 talks so heavily, especially in the first six verses of chapter 4 on unity. All united under one faith, one love, one spirit, one baptism, one Lord, all of those things. And we've, I've spoken at great length about how we are united to the churches in decades and centuries past just as much as we would be to the one down the road. There is no time gap here. It is not as if the church only exists presently with no regard for anything that has ever happened or any of the people throughout all of church history. This meant something to Paul. My brother. And then he also calls him, well, we see the second one, a companion in labor, a co-laborer or a fellow worker. Because, what again, they were united in their spiritual labor. They had the same goals, much like him and Timothy. No one else cares about the things that, that I care about the same way that Timothy does. Me and him are like-minded. Epaphroditus in the same way, fellow workers in ministry 
and in the gospel. Some of you may familiarize yourself with this one a little bit more. And fellow soldier, they were united in common struggles against the enemy. I understand that in America it's not something that we highlight too much, um, but in many other countries it's something that has seen very much uh, more right in your face. It's very clear. But the understanding that the Christian should be absolutely aware of is that we are constantly engaging in spiritual warfare each and every day. Now, it's great to say, hey, that's just this kind of idea. It's just a concept. It's just some understanding. But it's not really a thing. You know, that's just interpersonal things. There's not actually um, demons that are doing anything. There's not actually any spiritual warfare. There's not actually any of those things that are going on. But do we truly understand? Do we truly live our life as if there is a battle that is going on? Now, keep in mind, the battle, while it is going at the same time, it is over, correct? Now, it's one of those harder things to kind of wrap our minds around. And it's one of those, not an either or, it's a both and, which as I get older, again, qualifier, I understand I'm not old. Okay, so don't get mad at me. But as I get older, I am starting to see so many more things are not an either or proposition, but often a both and, having nuances within each and every little part. But this is something that they would have absolutely understood. We look at the whole of the New Testament. We constantly are seeing, especially in Christ's ministry, so much of that spiritual warfare taking place. And today we just call it by other names. We qualify it. We justify it. We skirt around the issue because we do not like that there might be something out there that we don't perfectly understand. As a pastor, I can definitely attest to the understanding of... Um, of spiritual warfare. You guys are very familiar with this by now. Saturday's worst day, most often for a pastor. Um, thank you so much for all of you that do pray so much on Saturday. Some of you send me messages. Some of you will do so on a Sunday morning. Those things mean so much to me, and it's such a tremendous encouragement to understand that there are those that continue to pray for pastors, for teachers, for so many, because it is such a reality that is often overlooked that these things do come up. And it's not just the pastor. It can often be the family as well. And many of you also struggle and deal with many of the same things. But even here, Paul is calling Epaphroditus a fellow soldier with common struggles in what it is that they are actually trying to do and trying to achieve. The fourth title, he calls him your messenger. The word here is apostolos, or the same word that would be used as an apostle. I want to stop for a minute because there's, not, there's been a, a large movement in the past, we'll just broaden it out to a decade. Um, and I think I had mentioned it probably about a year ago. The New Apostolic Reformation. How many of you guys are even familiar to some extent on it? Some of you, right? Um, a large movement that continues to grow. Bethel Church is one that is very into it. Um, lots of conversation about prosperity. It's about self-fulfillment. A lot of it then gets to, hey, you too can be an apostle. Not what we're seeing here of a messenger where you are sent out. Here, this word that's being used for him is more of the little a, apostle of being sent out by the church, not being one of the 11 plus Paul plus Matthias. Not, that group is closed. That apostle group is absolutely closed. But New Apostolic Reformation is teaching and saying, hey, if you want to join and you want to be a member, you could spend a couple hundred dollars. You get to be an apostle. 
so we could have big A apostle messenger sent by God, Jamie Spry, for $400 a year. Wow. That sounds great, doesn't it? Oh, and if you do this, you're going to get all sorts of these spiritual gifts. But again, that package might cost a little bit more. But of course, God wants you to have all of these gifts, all of these talents, all the finances that you would have ever wanted, all the comforts, all of these things. Um, a gross misunderstanding of healing, where many of you are more familiar with the Benny Hinn faith healing kind of things, the big showy, all of those different things, to where they take um, so many verses out of a gross context and say, okay, healing and gifts, okay, great, we're going to take that, we're going to try to monetize all of these things and just completely blaspheme all that's going on. When I was growing up, this wasn't so much, um, probably too much of a craze when I was at least aware of it. But late night when I would stay at my grandma's house uh, with a TV on, I'd wake up at 2 in the morning, and you guys know how those commercials used to be. All of that stuff is on. Okay, uh, Miracle Manilofs, I can sow seeds for $20. All of these things that people get so hooked into because we so desperately want to be comfortable. We so desperately want and need those things. And I get it, right? The person who says, I don't have a job. I'm struggling financially. This person is coming, seeming as a prophet of God, saying that I can have these things. We truly do desire and want those things. We're tempted with those things. But who else was tempted with what he could see? We see that the temptation of Christ. We say, look at all these kingdoms. If you bow down before me, look at all that I'm going to give you. Imagine the arrogance of Satan to tempt Christ and to say that I will give you this as if he did not create it or already possess and own it. Paul is not making a claim here that now Epaphroditus, because they have been because they have grown close or because he's a minister in some way, because he is in service, that he is now one of the big A apostles sent, commissioned absolutely by God, who had witnessed the risen Christ and all of these things. He is simply calling him a messenger. This is a little A apostle sent out by the church. Look at those five titles and see how it is that he looks upon Epaphroditus. This is an incredibly encouraging thing. Imagine putting yourself here and seeing Paul call you my brother, a companion in labor, a fellow soldier, their messenger, and that he or you have ministered to his wants. How incredibly encouraging this is. And it is all service-based and sacrificial service out of his love for Christ. But then what is Paul doing? He's sending him back. Well, Paul, if this person's so awesome, so useful for you, why are you sending him back? How many of us know people that are incredibly important? They have served us. We're so close to them. We absolutely share in a common love. And we're sending them away quickly. We like to hold tightly to those people, right? Because we know there's not a whole lot of them. Paul is sending him back. Is he sending him back because, well, he's homesick? Is he sending him back because, hey, Epaphroditus is tired. He, he's just been working so hard. He just needs to get some rest. Is it because, hey, he's been here for a while. He'd like to retire and just kind of sit back and do his thing until the Lord comes. He's going to go on here quickly. We'll go through 26 through 30 and explain why. 
Verse 26, For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that ye heard that he had been sick. Now think about this for a minute. You could go through the first half of that and say, see, he longed for you all and was full of heaviness. See, he just missed his people. And Paul is, of course, what a gracious, loving guy. You miss your family. You miss your friends. Sure, go home. But why is it then that Epaphroditus was so concerned? Why was he grieved? Why was he heavy? What was it that he longed for so much? He was sad and distressed because his church back in Philippi heard that he was sick and they were greatly troubled for it. Have you ever been greatly in distress or troubled because you know somebody else was so concerned and in distress over your situation? Okay, as a parent, seeing one of my kids even be concerned about one of us, that's distressing. Um, Every time I don't respond to a text from my wife in a short amount of time, husbands, this may be the case for you, my wife assumes I'm dead every time as if I'm just out here just super easy to just die and roll into a ditch every time this is what kind of the assumption is but again I understand why she's in distress because she cares so much she greatly cares about her husband and when she cares that much I know that she cares that much, and I finally see it and see, oh, I missed this two hours ago. She's been in distress over this for two hours. Now I greatly long to want to communicate with her, hey, I'm okay. How cruel it would be to know that she's in distress over my condition when I'm okay and just saying, well, we'll get there. We'll figure it out. I don't need to tell her right away. Here Epaphroditus is in great distress Because his church that had sent him heard that he was sick, and they're in distress over it. Now, we have an incredible opportunity to text each other, to call, to send emails, to do so many different ways to communicate. What would have had to happen for Epaphroditus to get the message back to them that everything is okay? You're either writing a letter letter and having someone send it. There's no great USPS around here. He would have had to go there himself and tell them. Remember two weeks ago we talked about how and it would have taken at times to travel weeks or even months to get back to the church. How many things could change in your life in a matter of three months? How, how many things have changed in your life in a matter of three months? A tremendous amount of things. They had heard this report probably from some kind of uh, traveler or someone passing by that Epaphroditus was sick. And in verse 27, it says, For indeed he was sick nigh unto death. This is not just sick with what we've been all experiencing throughout this winter, with a cold or the sniffles or a little bit of an infection or whatever the case is. Pretty close to death here. Incredibly sick, incredibly weak. All of this situation, they had heard about it, they were in great distress, and Epaphroditus hears that they're in distress over it. Now he's troubled. Do you guys see this big ball of distress just being passed around believers here? How many of us would be in distress knowing that one of you are distressed about our situation? If I am in a tremendously horrific situation and I'm knowing that some of you are troubled over it, that's going to bother me too. 
especially when you're saying, hey, I'm okay. I know that you're troubled, but I'm going to be okay. The word that's used here for distress is the same one that's used by Matthew and John to describe Jesus' anguish as he was praying in the garden. Now, this is not for the sake of a, of a parallel or for the sake of comparison. Obviously, it is not to that level of distress, but to understand that this is severe. This is not a, I just really wish they weren't concerned about me. He's bothered greatly by it, and he longs to return back to them. For indeed, he was sick nigh unto death, but God, which again, two of my favorite words in all of Scripture, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Well, why doesn't Paul just say, hey, but he got better? Hey, he was sick, but guess what? It's okay, he got better. I'm sending him back because he's better now and things are fine. Notice the language. Notice the understanding that Paul is going to send forth here. But God had mercy on him and on me also. Because when God spares a person from death, it is always a reflection of his mercy. Now we're kind of linking from where we were at in the Sunday school, right? Talking about mercy, we understand death and even an understanding of uh, what we see, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Who's the sinner? All of us, right? So all of us, our wages, our work, all that we have accrued and what we are deserving of is death. That is incredibly plain in all of Scripture, from Romans 3 to 5 to 6. And so Paul understands this in his understanding that God, in the fact that he got better, had mercy upon him. He does not just say, well, he just got better, don't know what happened. It was God's mercy. In his commentary, MacArthur notes of the blind beggars who go to Christ and they ask him for mercy. They don't ask him for healing, saying, well, it's just fair that you would heal me. Lord, Lord, heal me. That's the thing that's fair. Make me better. They're pleading, Lord, please be merciful upon me. Oh, son of David, please show mercy. Because quite honestly, the fair and the just and whatever the word is that we want to use for it, particularly fairness, is that we deserve and that our wages return us with death. Which is why we've also spoken at great lengths about be careful about asking for those things that are fair. The Christian understands that there is nothing fair about grace. There is nothing fair about salvation. There is nothing fair about all of these things. And we are incredibly thankful that God was not fair in accounting for our sins. But the mercy was not just upon Epaphroditus. Notice what he says, and not upon him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. This is waves and waves and waves of sorrow. Some of you guys used to probably live in California out by the ocean. You just see waves and waves and waves coming in. only thing I've ever been in is a wave pool at Disney. It doesn't count. Not even close. It's not waves. 
waves upon sorrow. Look, this is a person, again, this would, if Epaphroditus had died, he would have absolutely mourned him. Why? Because he was his brother, a companion in labor, a fellow soldier, another messenger, ministering to him in these things. Would have been greatly troubled, greatly grieved, as many of us would be if anyone close to us were to die. And he is praising God. He is so thankful because God has had mercy on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Verse 28, I sent him therefore the more carefully, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Remember that big ball of distress that we had going around? Well, now Paul's joined into it too. Because he's troubled, that Epaphroditus is troubled, that the church was troubled hearing upon him being sick. Everyone is sharing in all of these burdens. Everyone is sharing over the distress of another. If any one of you were to be distressed greatly, do you think the people close to you would also have some sort of response to it? Absolutely they would. Because that's what genuine love does. But Paul is sending him back. And I love that he says he's sending him back because if he doesn't, Epaphroditus is just going to come back and they're going to say, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be with Paul. Well, he sent me back. Well, we need a letter with that. So he's sending him back so that all will go well. And in these last two verses, Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation. Because for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. Now, that lack of service, you could quickly read this and say, hey, he's just throwing that church under the bus here right at the very end. Your lack of service towards me. But they were all unable to get to him. Epaphroditus was willing, again, nigh unto death, not regarding his life, was willing to still sacrifice so many of these things in order to minister to Paul, to give up his own comfort, to give up his own fame. Again, this is not a person of any acclaim. This is not a person with any official title. He didn't, he's not particularly gifted in any kind of ways that we're seeing other than loves God, he loves other people, sacrificing his life in service to Christ and to others. There is so much simple beauty in even these few verses that we see here. Essentially, 25 through 30, one of the things that Paul is showing forth quite clearly is a faithful servant, a deacon, a person who is willing to serve Christ and to serve others, praising God for the giving of this person and lifting it up. Why does he do this? Why does he go from Christ to himself, to Timothy, to Epaphroditus? It's everybody. Every person can find in this example, you can say, well, hey, obviously I'm not Christ. I can't do that. Okay, move on. Well, hey, I'm not Paul. That guy was incredibly special. He's an apostle. We know about Paul. I couldn't ever do that either. So this still doesn't work. Well, what about Timothy? Again, I'm not super gifted. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a great speaker. I don't think God's going to use me in this. Okay, next one, Epaphroditus. Oh, you mean just caring for the needs of others in the church, serving them, loving them, being with them? showing genuine concern, that's ministry? Yes. Absolutely it is. That's the Christian life. It is no coincidence that all of these examples follow the exhortation to work out your faith with fear and trembling. 
hey, work these things out. Do so without murmuring. Here's an example. We already know Christ has done so, but now look at Paul. Now look at Timothy. Now look at Epaphroditus. These are things that his people are going to do as a natural result of a true, genuine affection, love for Christ, and living a life out of thanks and gratitude to him. We will serve him and one another. It is not something that has to be conjured up. It's not something that a church has to organize as a program for service to one another. It's not something we have to bring upon for Epaphroditus. He isn't seeking to bring about his own suffering because he understands, hey, you're going to suffer. He's simply caring for others in the church, and by extension, that suffering is brought upon him by faithful obedience. We learn about suffering. We see that it's a promise. We can see all of these things, and we can often say, okay, if I'm not suffering, then I'm going to make myself suffer. I'm going to do this and make myself suffer. Where my question would be, have you been talking about Christ to anybody around you? Have you been public with it at all? Are you faithful in obedience with others around you? Because naturally, you will be mocked. You will have some sort of suffering that comes your way. The Christian does not have to go seek out suffering. It finds you very, very quickly. And I don't think I have to tell anybody here that that is the case. Some of you have experienced far more suffering than I may ever experience in my life. It is going to be a natural result of the working out of our faith with fear and trembling. Epaphroditus, just a faithful servant, absolutely understood this. He wasn't seeking suffering. He sought to be obedient in service as a minister to go and to take care of Paul. Just think about, honestly, what he's doing. I'm just going to go take care of him. I'm going to go visit with him. I'm going to talk with him. I'm going to pray with him. I'm going to make sure that some of his basic needs are met. When I said at the beginning how simple these verses are, that's what we're looking at. The most basic, most simple things, but yet how much does it stand out when anyone here has ever received someone else in the church, someone else that loves them, meeting a simple and basic need? How tremendous that is. And in doing so, he sacrificed so many things. He sacrificed himself, sacrifices his own comforts, all in service to another, because that is what the Christian does, holding each other in higher esteem than ourselves, seeking the interests of others, not just to ourselves, because that's the Christian life. In the following verses, we're going to see some more distinguishing marks of the true believer, but I wanted us to look at these examples, and again, I told you I'd qualify this numerous times. Here's the last time. Don't, be like a, don't just be Epaphroditus. Don't try to be like Timothy. Don't try to be like Paul. Understand, they were who they were because of who Christ was as the ultimate example. Don't go out of here saying, man, I'm going to be Epaphroditus. I'm going to be in service to everybody. I want to be just like him. Be more and more like Christ. Epaphroditus, his goal was to be more like Christ. Same with Timothy, same with Paul. God has given different gifts to each and every person here. We've talked about that, the giftedness of so many people in the church. Not all are going to be public with their gifts. Not all are going to be speakers. There's far too many that think that's the only gift that God has given to his church, is the ability to speak publicly. We often overlook so many of the other ones. And I can also tell you, and I'll say it personally, without the other gifts present in a church, the pastor who's speaking is going to be wholly inefficient and could never successfully do his job without the encouragement of everything else. Completely impossible.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the giving of your word. We thank you how plain and how simple so much of it is. We, we, we understand that even those things that, that are simpler are very complex, and those things that are complex and difficult, we understand that they're so simple. God, I pray that as we continue to be conformed into your image as your people, that we would be lifting up one another in doing so, that as we offer up prayers, that we would not pray simply for ourselves, but that we would be in constant intentional prayer for one another, not only for their needs, but just the continued prayer that we would have for one another to be constantly encouraged through your word that through so many of these these ordinary means that you give us your grace, that you show us your mercy, that you show us your love, that even something as simple as telling someone that you've been praying for them or asking them what it is that they could be in prayer for, or meeting a basic need on even the simplest of levels, how beautiful that is and how beautiful of a picture that is of all that you are and all that you've done. God, I pray that as a church, we would not look at, at all of these things that as we study throughout Philippians, that we do not simply try to individualize each and every part to see just what this is for me, but to understand that you have written your word not just to individuals, but to a people, a people that is unified, to be working together. God, it gets so easy to, to narrow the scope into just what I could be doing or who it is that I am, but God, I praise you that you have saved not just a person, but you have saved your people, the people of the covenant from the very beginning, as we've seen all the way in the first few chapters of Genesis. God, we understand that you have set up the church, that you continue to build the church, that as we continue to grow and to be sanctified more and more like your son, as you continue to work in us, that we continue to grow closer with one another, and that in these things we have a mutual edification to seeing the beauty of all that you have designed the church to be. And God, we thank you that you've even given us an opportunity here this morning to even praise you in this congregation, to sing a song of, of praise to you, to be able to lift up your name, to even give us the breath to do so. We thank you for the mercy and the grace that you have bestowed upon us here today. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son to be the atonement for our sins, understanding that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that it is that sin that brings about the wages that we deserve, which is death. But through the work of your Son on the cross, the perfect, complete, and one time for all work of Christ on the cross that you've offered redemption. God, we praise you simply for that. We thank you that that in a world that struggles with trying to identify who it is that we are as a people, trying to find out who we are, who I am, and in a world that is restless and seeking identity, we know clearly through your word who we are. 
and that everything that we do is in light of who it is that we are simply because of who you are and what you have done for us. That those good things we do are simply a result of trust in you, of the indwelling of your spirit, and any good thing, good and perfect thing that is done by us is done by your working and by your hand. God, I pray that you would guide us and lead us as we go here. And pray that we would be a church that continues to build up one another, seeking out encouragement, and continue to edify one another as you've designed us to do. God, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.